Uh, let me post the first link. I think I put the first link uh, more general, like um, why we should try to stick to the to the limit we decided on, and why we are actually not uh, not sticking to it. And then we can go into different ways of the what it does to the environment and the new technologies. Hi, Curious. Welcome. Hi, Odil. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Kanima. Martha, Marsha, thank you for coming. Um, I'm just pinging people in and then we're starting in a few seconds. What do you think, Victoria? And then we'll go into the different articles. I also made a point to share a few good ones, like positive, um, you know, examples and technologies that are helping already uh, to guide us towards the right direction. I think we can finish maybe with that, so we are not going <laughs> to sleep all the time. <laughs> Agree. Okay. I guess more people will keep coming in, but um, yeah, I think we can start with this very broad one. And then, and then we can go from there. And it's recorded, so we are fine, I think. Okay, so um, when will global warming, warming actually hit the landmark uh, of 1.5 Celsius limit? Um, is this article, um, if you can't read the full version, I think this might be accessible. If not, reach out to me. I can always send the PDFs of these nature articles. <clears throat> so the planet is on track to reach the 1.5 Celsius average increase by uh, 2030s, although a new report suggests a single year will probably cross the line much sooner. There's a 66% chance that the annual global average temperature will hit 1.5 Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures at some time in the next few years, according to a World Meteorological Organization report released on May 17th. And um, reaching 1.5 Celsius of warming in a single year will be a landmark moment for the planet. Um, which in 2022 was about 1.15 Celsius warmer than in the pre-industrial times. But it's not quite the milestone most people mean when they talk about 1.5 um, Celsius of warming. For, what, for that, we probably have about a decade to go. The famous 1.5 Celsius figure, widely quoted as a desired maximum for planetary warming, stems from the 2015 United Nations Paris Agreement on Climate Change. This treaty declared the goal of keeping the global average temperature below 2 Celsius above pre-industrial levels with a preferred limit of 1.5. 
The Paris Agreement, however, refers to a sustained planetary average of 1.5 Celsius warming, not just the average for a single year, which alone could be anonymously hotter or cooler than the longer-term average. The Paris Agreement didn't specify exactly what was meant by 1.5 Celsius of warming, but the most recent report of the first working group of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, published in 2021, clarifies that it means the midpoint of the first 20-year per period when the average global surface air temperature is 1.5 Celsius warmer than 1850 till 1900 average. <clears throat> There are people that use different mythologies than they say, um, so which could, which then fluctuate some predictions being at 2030 and between 2030 and between 2050s. Uh, the time frame is getting closer and closer, however, says William Sulecki at City University of New York. Um, a massive two-year global stock take of progress on the Paris Agreement goals is winding up now and will be presented at the next UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Um, so the lower the better. Um, the, this number was chosen in an attempt to limit the severity of the impact of global warming, taking into account factors such as food security and extreme weather events. However, IPCC experts stress that 1.5 Celsius shouldn't be as a guardrail below which everything would be fine and noted that whatever temperature the world's warming peaks at the lower it is, the better. Obviously, there's a continuum. So, and it also notes the report that global warming is uneven. More than one-fifth of the world's population currently live in regions that have already exceeded the 1.5 Celsius of warming in at least one season. So, um, yeah, it's this is an average worldwide, and in a lot of places it's or, it already reached that. Um, and um, those numbers won't, uh, won't be apparent for decades under different emission scenarios. Peak temperature could be anything from 1.6 in around 2050, dropping to 1.5 Celsius by uh, 2100, to which emissions will still climbing at 4.4 um, with the peak still to come. So the next few years could bring an enormously high blip in annual temperatures compared with the longer term average thanks to an expected El Nino event, a natural climate pattern that brings warmer temperature to eastern Pacific Ocean and that ends to warm the planet as a whole. April Carbon Brief, a website that reports on climate matters, estimated that 2023 was shaping up to be one of the six hottest years on record most likely the fourth hottest. And in April, the global ocean spiked at the hottest temperature since records began. So that's the current situation. And um, let me post this link now also in the chat because we will move on to an article that Victoria uh, chose. Do you want to, to uh, add sure. something? Yes, I did. I did. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that article and all of those numbers. 
I just, I wanted to give a little bit of background about the 1.5 also. Um, just starting out, keeping in mind that the ocean produces at least 50% of the oxygen on Earth, and roughly the same amount is consumed by ocean life. So about the 1.5 and why it's significant, it's um, in a report from Yale Environment 360 from this March, so March 2023, that... Um, just a few things why the 1.5 is important or what kind of things could be expected. Scientists say that surpassing 1.5 degrees centigrade could tri trigger a cascade of tipping points which would irreversibly alter global climate system and further exacerbate warning, warming. Excuse me. For example, a collapse of the Greenland ice sheet could alter ocean currents which would shift the distribution of heat around the planet and lead to mass die-offs in the Amazon. If warming reaches two degrees, even temporarily, there's roughly one third of a uh, roughly one third chance of triggering one or more tipping points, a shift in Atlantic currents, which draw nutrient-rich waters up from the deep, would impact plankton near the surface, inhibiting their ability to soak up CO2. In the Amazon, the degradation of rainforest threatens to further drive up emissions, and while scientists have tended to focus on the wholesale clearing of the forest, even minor disturbances such as fires, drought, or small-scale logging can release massive amounts of carbon. Over the last two decades, emissions from such degradation have roughly equaled emissions from deforestation, a study finds, and rapid warming would fuel even more severe drought fire, leading to greater decay. In the Arctic, increasingly severe fires are unleashing carbon stored in peatlands, and as temperatures rise, the problem could get much worse. A recent study found that even small increases in temperature Yes, there's a cat, and I'm going to let her in. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, for the replays, that's a cat. Um, a happy cat. So, research shows that swamps in the Congo Basin may be... Excuse me. Climate change also threatens the world's largest tropical peatland, which lies in the Congo Basin. Longer dry seasons could desiccate the region, causing its forested swamps to decompose. Research shows that swamps in the Congo Basin may be more vulnerable to future climate change than most other tropical peatlands. So these are just some, some concrete um, scenarios to, to visualize when we're looking at what that 1.5 could cause. So um, let's hear a little bit about the fungi. And here's somewhat of a positive. I, I'm sorry, I put uh, right now oh, another yeah, link because we're talking yeah. about the outcome. Mm -hmm. Let's um, stay here. So this is just quickly, really quickly, no, that um, in, in, in Europe, uh, and especially in the north, actually, uh, the last few years, this was done, a study led by University of Oxford that in Northwest Europe, um, there were already a lot of warmest days uh, to heap. Uh, they heated up at twice the pace of the standard summer days and what they expected. Um, those uh, trends are especially seen in England, Wales and Northern France. 
and there was a lot of news lately there are severe droughts in France uh, going on um, that uh, that the harvest is kind of impacted um, so yeah this is just to show that you know we are going at a faster pace and it's it's not if you we had the room before I don't know if you remember but also the um, the East Asia different East Asia regions and the thing is if you take a average of a very large um, area let's say whole China you miss a lot of um, changes that are going on in the in the different local climates and then you might miss uh, droughts that are happening and coming in the future and he um, basically did a more granular analysis and this is another study like this that um, yeah just taking the average of global or whole Europe won't tell you much and won't be helpful for the agriculture in different regions to make predictions and to plan their crops in the future because you miss that for example um, there are localized droughts and heat waves um, that are coming up each year and depleting uh, water also underground water that that won't be replenished so um, yeah agriculture will be in trouble in those regions it's just to add some of the outcomes of this you know 1.5 celsius yeah, that I'm glad you brought that up. Do you happen, or maybe we could seek out that the link to that replay? That was that was extremely fascinating. What what you've just brought up about the microclimates and how it it isn't accurate to say you know even eastern China is experiencing this or that because it is full of of different environments that 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 have a huge range of of um, you know of systems, and so as you said, it it could be that that there's drought in one region with a certain type of farming, and then subsequent poverty the next few seasons because there's crop failure. It was it was a huge difference that his research was exposing, and and I think everyone in the room who was listening was was really surprised, you know, like we're not surprised when we hear, um, you know, gloom and doom and death and destruction um, in the face of climate change. And, but when, when you hear exactly what is happening, it was, it was even more eye opening. So if, if we could find that, it would be great. And I can go snooping for it too. <laughs> Yeah, perfect. Okay, let me pin now the fungus, which was really cool. After all the <laughs> the bad news, that one is is a very cool article. So here we go. We had in the science news a fungi article. So they are they are pretty popular nowadays. <laughs> okay, please go ahead. Well deserved. Fungi are humble heroes in the climate war. <laughs> okay. Fungi have often undeservedly been perceived as inferior to the plant and animal kingdoms. Oh, I don't know who says that. 
that's silly. <laughs> um, but these microorganisms have the potential to help rescue the world from the devastating effects of climate change. Really, it should say from the devastating effects of human activity. Just under our feet, there's a universe of fungi that has made life on Earth possible. These master recyclers release nutrients that sustain all plant life and sequester carbon in the soil by capturing it from the air. The top meter of the world's soil contains three times as much carbon as the entire atmosphere, making it a carbon sink alongside forests and oceans. Now, a new generation of biotech firms, scientists, and farmers are exploring the use of fungi to improve plants' ability to suck carbon out of the air and store it in the, long, in the soil long term. So carbon sink, meaning a place to store all this carbon that's produced, and then even use it as, it as it has been used as part of a carbon cycle, not part of, of toxicity. So moving on, it's simply not enough to just cut back on the CO2 emissions we're pumping into the atmosphere. To address climate change, we need to reduce the amount that's already present. That's something to think about as well. Researchers are identifying the best fungi out of an estimated trillion different microbial species for storing huge levels of carbon underground. The Society for Protection of Underground Networks, a nonprofit group of scientists. Um, hi, Joyce. Let's, let's bring you up. Um, sorry. Here we go. Uh, scientists has been mapping the world's huge underground webs of fungi. These researchers are collecting 10,000 samples from around the world and using machine learning to discover biodiverse areas that could best protect natural ecosystems and store carbon, as well as identifying at-risk areas. There's an organization called Lone Bio that has collected a diverse library of thousands of fungi across Australia and Northern America, many of them new to science. The team has used genetic sequencing and the latest bioinformatics tools to provide a better understanding of the inner workings of these organisms, how they react with plant, with plants, and influence carbon storage in, sto in soil. Following years of research in the lab, greenhouse, and fields, they've developed their first products, microbial seed coatings, that enhance carbon sequestration in the agricultural crops. So it's really, it is typical if anyone's ever grown beans before, then you can buy the, the bacteria to coat them before you plant them. So it is, it is a common thing to have microbial seed coatings that, that aren't used only in larger farms, but, but all of us can do that. If you're growing any legumes and it enhances their growing and it also enhances the ability to put nitrogen back in the soil. So anyway, moving on. In 2023, farmers will start to use such commercial fungi-based products to fight climate change. And that's now. Farmers in Australia are now applying one such product to their seeds before they plant crops. It is made up of beneficial fungi that grow in the roots of plants after they germinate. The plant draws carbon dioxide from the air and produces simple sugars via photosynthesis. The fungi convert these into complex and longer-lasting carbon compounds. Fungi play a crucial role in converting easily broken-down carbon compounds in soil into long-term stable forms. Some of these bind with minerals in the soil and remain there for hundreds or, in some cases, thousands of years. If this technology were applied to all of the soybean crops across 
America, it would offset the equivalent emissions of the entire U.S. aviation industry on an annual basis. That's, that's a really big piece of data. We are already working with, um, excuse me, uh, this, this organization is already working with companies such as the Australian Grain Commodity Powerhouse Grain Corps to pilot this technology, and in 2023, they will roll out their first microbial product to increase soil carbon at scale with Australian growers before deploying in the US. Fungi are breaking new ground everywhere. Fungal mycelium has hit the market as a vegan substitute for leather. The fungi is grown in a controlled environment and processed into sheets of a material that resembles leather in texture. And the article names other places that are also using fungi, but the focus of this room is climate change, so we will stick to that. So if this organization can harness the untapped power of fungi and apply it to farmland, the 1.8 billion hectares globally, it could result in the largest carbon drawdown event in history, an annual growth rate of only 0.4% of the standing global soil organic carbon stocks could counterbalance the current increase in atmospheric CO2. It's time fungi got the attention they deserve. And I, I just have to make one um, comment about this that the article says if we can harness the untapped power of fungi fungi are already at work and they have already been at work we just need to give them the recognition that they deserve so i think that's that's a really exciting and wonderful method as long as it doesn't have uh, remember last week katarina you shared that article about the fake meat that and how much greater the carbon footprint was for for that processed meat because of all the sanitation methods that were necessary and things. So I'm, I'm hoping that growing this fungi doesn't come along with those additional costs. Oh, hi, Hello, sorry, I was on mute. <laughs> and hi, Joyce, welcome. <laughs> Joyce, please go ahead. Uh, yeah, well, I think that's encouraging. Uh, but I don't think we should uh, put all our eggs in this basket and assume that it's going to solve the, the climate crisis. But, um, but, you know, hopefully it will help. We have to do a lot of different things. Anyway, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree that uh, we don't, we don't um, give them enough credit and also, you know, there have been a lot of studies that due to monoculture and a lot of different chemicals used in that monoculture, that we kind of deplete those organisms of the soil. Um, so, you know, this, this kind of points also towards those more traditional methods of leaving parts of the land alone to recover while the fungi are doing their job, um, I would assume that those practices would increase carbon capture ability of the soil. Um, and, you know, also then um, this shows why then um, um, that the crops are just healthier if we do it that, that rotation, we use that rotation method. The the problem is just in the future, 
with climate change, we may have less availability of land where we can actually grow produce. So, um, yeah, it's really important that if we can to use that rotation method, I think, so fungi can do their job. And, and, and hopefully we'll have in the future, we talked a little bit about this in the drought room we had with the researcher, we had about, you know, different microorganisms and how they have, you know, different types have different abilities and those that capture carbon more kind of um, uh, right now don't survive so well, um, longer droughts. Um, and the thing is, if we keep analy I think it will be important in the future to keep analyzing the soil and then treat it like they are mentioning it here. You know, we kind of ask if we could have kind of a preventive care for our soil and a maybe even personalized one for each farmer. I think that would be really great if it would be cheap and pretty straightforward to analyze your soil and then uh, plan, you know, to <clears throat> to use different fungi and different bacteria to kind of help the soil to recover well. That would be great. Okay, do you want to move to the Willow project? Um, sure. You have to switch around between good and bad. <laughs> I think. Okay. That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that return. My pleasure. Did you want to read it or should I read oh, it? Oh no, I'm I'm there. I'm just getting to it. Here it is. Yeah. Oh, I'm, sorry. I'm just navigating around phones and computers and <laughs> mics and things. This article has a really great title um, by Natural Resources Defense Council, whom we all know and love. And it's titled, Why the Willow Project is a Bad Idea. So many of us may be a bit confused about why the Biden administration did this great climate plan with the $8 billion, um, 8 billion toward fixing everything that's wrong. And then here comes this um, approval waiting in the wings for this Willow project. So let's hear about it so that we can so that we can fight it and contact whomever we can, depending on where you're at, whatever legislators you like to contact and, and share your thoughts. So the Willow Project, ConocoPhillips, a multinational fossil fuel company with headquarters in Houston, has been drilling in Alaska for decades. The company owns and manages the only extant drilling operations within the 37,000 square mile National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska, the federally owned parcel of land on the state's north slope. As the home to half a million caribou and a crucial nesting ground for millions of migratory birds, 
the NPRA, so that's the Natural Petroleum Reserve in Alaska, is of major ecological significance. It also happens to be the lar single largest tract of undisturbed public land in the country in a corner of Alaska that's already suffering from coastal erosion, melting sea ice, thawing permafrost. The Biden administration is now consenting to the extraction of huge amounts of oil that would ultimately make these problems worse, along with many others elsewhere on the planet. And um, this article has just mentioned some animals and um, does not mention uh, indigenous stewards of the land. So um, I want to mention that that was overlooked in that portion of the article, but moving on. The Trump administration approves ConocoPhillips' proposal for Willow in 2020, or approved in 2020, but a federal judge reversed that approval the following year, citing flaws in the environmental review process. After the ruling, the company modified the plan for Willow in an attempt to address the inadequate review. In 2023, the deadline for a final White House decision approached and the word spread about a possible approval. Climate activists mobilized, racking up hundreds of millions of views for the hashtag Stop Willow campaign on social media. Still in mid-March, the White House announced that it would allow ConocoPhillips to proceed with what would be the country's largest oil development project. The Climate and Environmental Impacts of Willow just a week after the Willow Project's approval, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued a new report observing that the world's governments are currently veering off track, and this is what you had just mentioned, Katarina, from the pledges to keep global temperatures, global average temperatures from rising 1.5 degrees Celsius, and further noting that there's a rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all. And we've just, we've already mentioned the repercussions of that. The only way to prevent the worst from happening, say the authors, is for the nations of the world to stop burning fossil fuels, an activity responsible for more than three quarters of the carbon emissions that are driving global temperatures upward. Biden administration acknowledges that Willow, if completed, would release an additional 9.2 metric tons of carbon pollution in the atmosphere each year, roughly equivalent to the pollution generated by 2 million gas-powered cars. Figures such as these have led Christy Goldfuss, NRDC's Chief Policy Impact Officer, to characterize the decision as greenlighting a carbon bomb. On top of the climate devastation, Willow's development would require the building of hundreds of miles of roads, pipelines, and other infrastructure that would bring harm to the NPRA's currently near-pristine ecosystem. Some conservationists estimate the project alone could result in the loss of 532 acres of wetlands, 619 acres of habitat disturbances for polar bears, whom are already having a hard time, and more than 17,000 acres of such disturbances for birds. The Bureau of Land Management, which is the federal agency in charge of the approval, has given the impression that its hands were tied, that ConocoPhillips' valid leases on NPRA land meant that the administration had little choice but to allow the project to continue. In the end, the agency considered several different project scenarios, but every one of them would have allowed ConocoPhillips to extract more than 90% of the oil that it sought. And I'd like to interrupt this article here 
because I don't know if anybody has ever had the experience of, <clears throat> excuse me, attending a city council meeting to, in order to support some environmental justice or prevent some kind of building. And this, <clears throat> this argument is often what we hear in response to a huge, um, you know, seamless list of reasons why something would be detrimental for the environment, for people living there, for, for life as, you know, as we know it. And the argument is frequently, well, this, this organization meets all of the criteria that were set forth by the city planners. And all of these, all of these laws are human created. And so they can be also human destroyed. So it's, it's really, it's important if you're ever in that situation, because it's to, to plan for that, because it's shocking when you hear that, well, you know, they meet all the criteria, therefore it's okay that they, that they tear down the forest and build this development. But there are always ways around it. And, and it's important to keep, keep fighting. So moving on. NRDC, but it is, it is terrifying to hear this. NRDC, in partnership with several other environmental groups, is challenging the agency's claim that it lacks the authority to limit the scope of the project any further. The lawsuit also asserts that the agency failed to adequately calculate the full climate impact of other future projects that Willow Infrastructure would welcome to the region. The agency's own review estimates that Willow alone could yield more than 600 million barrels of oil over the next 30 years. ConocoPhillips reported $18.7 billion in earnings last year, estimates that there might be as many as 3 billion barrels worth of oil equivalent to be extracted in nearby areas. As the Center for American Progress notes, burning that much oil would be the equivalent to the carbon annual carbon emissions of every truck plane, car, and form of transportation used in the United States combined. If ConocoPhillips estimates are correct and the oil industry is allowed to drill in the region to its heart's content, the result would blow U.S. carbon emissions targets out of reach. So far, the Biden administration has shown impressive leadership on climate. The Inflation Reduction Act, signed by the President last August, invested nearly $370 billion in clean energy and greenhouse gas reduction, making it the single most significant piece of climate legislation in U.S. history. That achievement and others signal that this administration was serious about fulfilling President Biden's pledge to cut climate pollution in half by 2030. The Willow Project would make reaching this goal much more difficult and certainly weaken American leadership on the international climate stage at a time when global leaders so urgently need to walk the walk on cutting carbon emissions. Approving Willow is a tragic mistake, one the United States and the world can't afford. How do you get around that one? Yeah, thank you so much for sharing this. And, and I agree, it's important that we kind of push our politicians into the right direction and that they know that the public stands behind, you know, protecting the climate and the environment. So they also have, you know, that, that they have basically the support of meeting those goals and pushing for it because, you know, they always think about <laughs> they want to be
be re-elected again and stay in power so if they know we want these type of you know legislation or protection of different environments they for sure they just want to stay in power so <laughs> if we show them that um they will they will move towards those type of you know protective decisions uh, at least that's what i think i know there are lobbies and everything but in the end they they just want to be reelected I wonder how long before it will be developed to the point where they are pumping all that oil and whether something might intervene in this meantime, because I imagine it's going to be a, a process of have to build all this infrastructure and, and so on. Maybe maybe after Biden gets, if he gets reelected, then maybe he feels he can uh, change the decision or something. Yeah, it's um, this, I just wanted to share this, this other article. It's, this is about the, called the native perspective that the detrimental climate impact is by far the project's most severe effect. However, media is ignoring a crucial factor. The drill site sits next to the Nuiqsut tribe Inupiaq community that strongly opposes the Willow Project. So here are the indigenous who will suffer, would suffer. Hopefully we can stop it. This project will produce deadly toxins that will directly impact Nuiqsut residents and destroy the land that they depend on for hunting, fishing, and harvesting, in other words, for their life. The tribe and the native community are living as a modern example of colonization, most directly and deeply affected by the Willow Project. So it's, you know, the, the um, NRDC article mentioned birds and caribou, etc. They're also native people who have, have, you know, it's their land since time immemorial. It's their land. And here are these organizations discussing what's what's to happen with them and their generations to come. Yeah, hopefully some lawsuits or something can stop it before it gets going. Right. So, yeah. So here we are having this room and urging everybody to do what, you know, what works for you in your day as you see fit as you are able to contact your people and let them know how you feel about this thanks yeah thank you for raising the awareness and um yeah it's it's really important um to raise awareness about these things and um yeah and turn it into action so, um, and speaking about turning into action, maybe we can discuss a few, um, you know, te new technology developments that kind of, you know, try to solve problems. 
and I thought this was really interesting. You know, nappy is like the UK name for uh, diapers, and um, the worst, world's first house made with nappy blended concrete. So I don't know if you know, but concrete is really, you know, um, takes a lot of or it has a big impact on the environment. Um, it produces a lot of carbon and um, their companies trying to figure out how to, you know, keep building houses with um, lower carbon impact. And the this group here um, made a hybrid material that is a more one of logistics and comprehensive compressive strength. In an attempt to solve two environmental problems at once, researchers at the University of Kitakyushu in Japan have found that shredded nappies can be used to replace between 9 and 40% of the sand used in making concrete without the reducing its strength. Disposable nappies are grown, growing source of non-recyclable waste and cement production is responsible for almost 7% of global greenhouse gas emissions and consumes about 50 billion tons of sand each year. The nappy-infused concrete was used to build a small house in Indonesia to demonstrate how this type of waste could be diverted from landfills to build more affordable housing in low and middle income communities. Siswanti Zuraida, a civil engineer at the University of Kitakyushu, began the project while lecturing at the Bangdong Science Technology Institute near Jakarta. Although uh, population numbers in wealthy countries often plateau and decline, those in Indonesia and other low- and middle-income countries will continue growing, leading to more babies, more nappies, and more demand for low-cost housing. It's all about the resource availability, says Zuraida. With the growth of the population, diaper waste will also grow. It's challenging, so we thought that this would be a part of our contribution to recycling this waste. Single-use nappies are typically made from wood pulp, cotton, and superabsorbent polymers, smaller ones of which have been shown to improve the mechanical properties of concrete. With funding from Jakarta-based waste management company called Awina, Zuraida set out to determine how much sand could be swapped for shredded nappies to create useful concrete and mortar close to home. Initially, the researchers sourced the nappies locally um, after the nappies were washed, dried, and shredded, the resulting material was combined with cement, sand, gravel, and water. The team tested different mixes, replacing up to 40% of the sand and the concrete. After a month of curing, the samples were pressure tested to determine the breaking point of the composite material. And from these measurements, they calculated the maximum proportion of nappy waste that could match the needs of building components. The more nappy waste in the concrete, the lower the compressive strength. Structural components such as columns and beans therefore need a smaller proportion of shredded nappies than did architectural elements such as walls and concrete blocks. 
For their prototype single story house, the researchers called that calculated that 27% of the sand could be replaced by nappy waste. But if the house was three stories tall, the proportion would need to drop to 10%. In architectural components, up to 40% of the sand could be replaced by nappy waste, with the highest proportion in concrete wall panels, in flooring and garden paving which need to be stronger than walls to meet building standards, just 9% of the sand could be replaced by nappies. So yeah, I think this is really smart. I don't know how they came up with this. It's really smart and a wonderful idea. And uh, yeah, it's very locally grown. <laughs> I think it, it's a wonderful idea, but, but I, I, I laughed at myself. I almost think it, when you were reading it, I was thinking, if this turned out to be an April Fool's Day joke story, I wouldn't have been terribly surprised. Because, <laughs> you know, nappies and construction building. Anyway, but, but it's amazing. Thanks. Yeah, using anything that, that we have excess of, and there's certainly an excess of this. And also, I just, I like the idea that if you're going to be if you're going to be making concrete then anything that can um you know use things that we already have that can can stop using non-renewable resources so this is this is wonderful okay did i share it in the chat uh, I hope so. So yeah, this one um, has to do with the coral reefs. Uh, I think it's also really important. Um, and it's about the algae that are also more and more in the news. Um, you know, how they can contribute to we have sustainable food, but um, now this shows that crustose coralline algae can contribute more than corals to coral reef carbonate production. So it's the, the nature paper if you don't have access. Oh, no, it's an open access one, so it's fine. So um, I'll just read the abstract and then we can kind of talk about it. So understanding the drivers of net coral reef calcium carbonate production is increasingly important as ocean warming, acidification, other anthropogenic stresses threaten the maintenance of coral reef structures and the services these ecosystems provide. Despite intense research effort on coral reef calcium carbonate production, the inclusion of a key reforming accreting calcifying group, the crustose coralline algae, remains challenging both from a theoretical and practical standpoint. While corals are typically the primary reef builders of contemporary reefs, crustoceous coralline algae can contribute equally. Here we combine several sets of data with numerical and theoretical modeling to demonstrate that crustoceous coralline algae carbonate production can match or even exceed the contribution of corals to reef carbonate production. Despite their importance, crustoceous coralline algae are often inaccurately recorded in benthic surveys or even entirely missing from coral reef carbonate budgets. 
we outlined several recommendations to improve the inclusion of these algae into such a carbonate budgets under the ongoing climate changing uh, climate crisis. Coral reef hosts an incredible array of diversity and are formed via the production and accretion of calcium carbonate by resident classifying species. The existence of reefs requires the maintenance of calcium carbonate structures that depend on, on the balance of processes that produce and remove calcium carbonate. These processes have been a subject of intense scientific effort to determine the carbonate budgets of reefs. Um, and then it, it goes on um, how you know the different type of coral reef carbonate production and crustaceous coralline algae contributes in the figure one. Um, so you can see there how much the different organisms contribute to to this classification. And um, yeah, I think it's interesting that we, I think lately in news like this, we learn more and more how like fungi, algae, um, the microbiome, how important it is and um, how we have been overseeing them. And uh, we have to kind of pay more attention to them. Uh, because they play a very important role in the ecosystem and keeping things alive and um, carbon capture and all these things. So we highlight that CCA carbonate production can be specially and temporarily high. Presently, it is difficult to assess the global contribution of CCA to carbonate production of coral reefs given the underestimate of CCA cover and area normalized calcification rates outlined here. However, through conceptual models and the more case study presented here, we have shown that CCA can account for large portions of coral reef carbon production, especially following disturbances such as coral mass um, mortality events. Additional emphasis on CCA and other non Tinian calcifiers and the inclusion of the methods discussed above will be important for the coral reef research community to improve estimates of coral reef carbonate production and relative contribution of CCA to this important process. Thus, we recommend improvement of these methods that include accurate measurements um, and using molecular identification and photogrammetry in the most complex and accurate surveys. Increasing frequency and intensity of chloral bleaching events under the ongoing climate crisis will continue to drive further declines in coral cover, suggesting that CCA are likely to emerge as increasingly important contributors to the construction and maintenance of coral reef carbonate structures in the Anthropocene. So they say that they could be the key to basically keep coral reefs um, up um, to keep this ecosystem going um, with climate change because they suggest that they might be able to continue this calcification process even in warmer areas. So we should pay attention to them.
there, I don't know if you've seen that organizations that are doing 3D printed concrete scaffolding to help rebuild, and, and this is in conjunction with trying to raise them in nurseries. So, so building these, this scaffolding and then placing it in areas where there's bleaching and destruction of the reefs. Have you seen those? Oh, no, I haven't. Yeah, that's, it's been um, for, I don't know, maybe four years. I've been reading about it, but I just was reading about it again. And some of them, people are using titanium, and but also um, it seems like it's more popular now to use 3D printed concrete. So I'm just thinking, you know, when we look at certain urban areas and the buildings are all, you know, built along parallel and perpendicular lines, <laughs> and how everything looks in a big city and and nature tends to have more curves and variability of form and so that's beautiful and relaxing i think for our minds and how sad it would be if if coral reefs took on that that parallel you know 90 degree angles kind of urban the coral reef kind of look so i hope that people who are making them who are building 3d printing them are trying to make them also look like like a real live reef. And in case people aren't aware of coral and what it is, it's if you don't know that coral is is an animal. There's it's a little it's called a polyp and it lives inside of this of of the calcium carbonate um, house that it builds. But the important thing is that it has a relationship with the photosynthetic algae. So it, it doesn't make its own food or eat its own food. It's, it's dependent on the algae that it lives with. So it's even more vulnerable because it can, I mean, I guess you could say it could be more or less because it has, it has a, it's a double, double living thing, but, but both of these life forms have to be healthy and maybe even threefold at risk because if there's if it's not able to harness to you know produce the calcium carbonate if the oceans are acidified where it lives then it's not going to be able to to create that the hard reef that we see so all all aspects of the coral reef are so they're just in such delicate balance and um, so it's it is exciting that that there can be it seems like a prosthetic reef to be 3D printing them. But anyway, that's that's something else that people are trying to do to help these guys out. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. And then I found this article um, also that I pinned um, on top um, that this tiny red crab could help protect the Great uh, Barrier Reef. I don't know. Um, we it's really interesting because it has kind of similarities to the kelp forest, ocean forest that is kind of dying, and it has to do with that. In this case, a specific type of sea star is dying due to warmer uh, waters, and another species that kind of eat kelp too much, um, a kind of um, taking over and then contributing to the uh, really harsh decline of these ocean kelp forests that are really important 
And in this case, for the Great Barrier Reef, there are these little killer starfish, which is destroying the Great Barrier Reef, and a tiny crab could change all that. Scientists fighting to save the Great Barrier Reef had discovered a new secret weapon, a tiny red crab. Um, so th these reef-building corals, they have been devoured by plagues of toxic crown of thorn starfish. And, um, oh my god, this article is jumping. I hate that one. <laughs> um, and basically, uh, these crabs that you can grow apparently fairly easily, um, they eat those starfish that eat the reefs too much. So, um, yeah, I think this is great news. And, um, well, I hope it doesn't backfire <laughs> sometimes, these kind of things do. But, um, yeah, if that's really the case, that you could release crabs and, um, and that, um, you know, too many of these starfish, um, you know, all of this imbalance is to climate change. You, you have species that would usually be there to balance out the system. They died uh, because of climate change and now you have to kind of find a way to rebalance the system and apparently this could be a way. There's a question in the chat. Kanima shares asking if these crabs are indigenous to the reef or are they introduced? I would guess they'd be introduced or they'd be already there, right? Well, they could be beefing up their population. I'll, I can go look it up. Yeah, while you're doing that, I was thinking what one of the examples of what Katarina was saying was the whole story about trying to control rabbits in Australia. And uh, they introduced a, a virus, I believe. Anyway, that's that's a whole other story. Anyway, thanks. Yeah, so it's a it's a really great, really great question, and I'm looking. Thank you, Kanima. Thank you, Katarina, for that article. Yeah, that's whenever you are introducing something that's not natural to an area, then it doesn't have its own predators and, and you know, they keep it under control. And, and that's a big issue with invasive species all around the world. So that's why it's very tricky introducing things. Yeah, they are. Um, and like they are from the region but they are apparently very vulnerable when juvenile and hide in the coral rubble when they are small and this is when predators um oh actually I, they are native to the tropical indo-pacific and australia and it reaches a maximum size of six centimeters and can be found at depth up to 40 meters. 
and I'll share the original paper. So they are from that region, but um, apparently not enough to catch up with the rise of um, of the the starfish that probably took over because some other species that would probably help eat them to give them a check um, probably died probably other sea stars um, or other predators that probably are less prevalent now. Okay, are we ready for some good news in the end? I know we said an hour, but I yeah. want to finish <laughs> Yeah, so we have some good news. <laughs> perfect. We have some good news like from different countries and then also uh, for different technologies. So since we maybe we can keep it at a couple and then, you know, we'll have more rooms of this. So, um, but I like encouraging news too. <laughs> okay, so um, since we talked about, you know, how bad climate is changing at the double pace um, in, in Europe, um, the good news is that um, a few countries like Spain, Sweden and Belgium uh, in the Euro of the European countries are setting new wind and solar records. Greater solar capacity got Portugal over the halfway mark, while Spain, Finland and Belgium also um, breaking energy records. Solar and wind produced more than half of Portugal's electricity for the first time last month. And, um, and in April, they saw the renewables reach 51% of electricity production, beating the previous monthly record of 49% in December. Strong solar deployment, electricity imports from Spain and lower demand kept energy generated by fossil fuels to just 24%, despite a drought-driven dip in hydropower. Um, so as Europe emerges from a crisis winter, strong growth of wind and solar are paying dividends. This spring, renewables are already lessening the impact of droughts and high electricity prices across the EU, as well as lowering emissions. The lightning pace of deployment, especially of solar, promises many more records to come this summer. So I thought that was good news. And I have another one. Yeah, I don't know if you realize, but you know, the last years with the previous Brazilian uh, president, it was really bad how much they were um, killing the the Amazon, the Brazilian Amazon. But this has been falling under President Lula. Um, the the fell. Um, of the forest was reduced by 68% in April. Hopefully it will continue, but Lula kind of promised to continue that and drop it even more probably. So let's hope that that's really the case. Um, but yeah, the, the killing basically, uh, the deforestation dropped by 68%. I thought that was good news too. <laughs> that's fantastic news. And uh, interjecting, that's 
that's beautifully fantastic news. That's a, that's a good thing to carry away. Um, as far as the sea stars on the Great Barrier Reef, that it's thought that they were prospering because of overfishing, so there are fewer predators. So that, and they are so successful at decimating coral. So they, um, tipping their balance of predator-prey situation at all. It doesn't need, they don't need much help to, to overpopulate. But back to the good news. Yeah. I was going to say, my thought about the story in Spain, I mean, it's exciting to hear about them, but I think the lesson we should take from that is that it is possible to do it. The problem is not enough countries are doing it. So we all have to work super hard to, to you know, vote and advocate to get our, all of our countries to do it that fast. Anybody can do it, really, or, you know, especially countries with more resources and places like the U.S. has plenty of solar. You know, you know we're in a good climate, you know, for getting lots of solar, but um, we just have to decide to do it. And we have to do the infrastructure too where needed, you know, like transmission lines. And we have to push the politicians because they're not going to do it fast enough. And we've been seeing that. So I, I like to tell people about Citizens Climate Lobby, but there are other groups too, you know, to join that make it easier for you to advocate, you know, with your representatives and, and to also, you know, train you in communicating to, you know, let other people know what they should do or what they could do. Anyway, thanks. Thank you, Joyce. It would be great if you want to put that in the chat. I know you did last okay, week sure. on Wednesday, and, and yeah, it'd be great to put it in any week. I have, if you're in the U.S., I have the number of the Capitol switchboard that will put you in touch with your legislator if you're in the U.S. And why is it that apathy seems so great in areas where people are just get comfortable and stop thinking about other people that aren't so comfortable? So those of us yeah. who are... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll put another link too for the environmental voter project, because unfortunately, um, a good portion of environmentalists have become discouraged and stopped voting, and so that led to the formation of this particular nonprofit. To um, you know, they have volunteers, or you can donate. Um, you know, calling people, texting them to they can figure out who is an environmental voter based on, you know, various uh, data that they have about people and encourage them to vote. And once they get them to vote one time, they typically can get them to vote repeatedly. And, you know, a lot of our elections are very close. And so if we could just get all the environmentalists to vote, uh, things would be a lot different, I would say. Anyway, thanks. Yeah, thank you. And it is, it is fun to do phone banking, by the way, if anybody hasn't and and has an inclination to you can just call one person a day you can sign up for a phone bank and, the, and they just they just feed you numbers on your phone and tell you exactly what what's needed to be said and then you can do a few or or keep doing it for as long as you like but it's it's pretty simple and yeah and, yeah they um, have they have that with the environmental voter project and then if you also don't like the speaking to someone they have a way of texting people that you can do also. yeah right and anyway. i know we get you know during elections we get those texts again you know i'm sure it's different in different countries and recognizing that people are here from all over 
Um, but I have received those texts and, you know, many of them I don't, I, you know, I look at, but I don't just delete them all, even though they can become annoying. I do look and see who do, who do you want me to vote for? Who do you want me, you know, what petition? And, you know, if I look at them, I'm sure other people do too. So yeah, that's a great idea, Joyce. I've never done that texting one. Um, but it, yeah, it, it is a bit less frightening than waiting for somebody to answer their phone. Yeah, yeah, and I'll say about the Citizens Climate Lobby is it is international. And so if you, you join it site, uh, then they will let you know, um, usually I think what your group is, or you can also look up on their website. And so if you join your local group, then you'll find out about the efforts in your country, even outside of Citizens Climate Lobby, because most people are involved in multiple things that when, they're in, when they're activists. So you'll find out about a lot if you do that. Anyway, thanks. Yeah, thank you. And, um, you know, there's been, especially in Germany, how, I don't know how much it is in other countries, a lot of like fear-mongering about that this will make energy costs so much more expensive if we switch to renewables because the current government, um, the Green Party that is part of the current government, they are trying to push uh, legislation to for heat uh, and, you know, to use more other renewables around the houses and so on and switch to that. And there's a lot of fear-mongering that's, everyone says it will be so much more expensive and it's just not true and I wanted to share this article in the end to really I know probably no one in Europe uh, from Europe is currently now there but also for people in the US that are maybe scared of this you know I wanted to share this article where um, they um, they share that solar baking, how the sun is helping to the, reduce the cost of bread in Lebanon. Did you know you can power an oven with the heat of the sun? Food prices have skyrocketed in Lebanon during a three-year economic crisis. And many people are struggling to afford even basic foods like bread. In some cases, the cost of a loaf has increased seven times in the space of a month in an effort to reduce producing costs and therefore sales price. Inventor Tufik Hamadan has created a commercial bakery oven powered by the sun's heat. Uh, how does it work? On the rooftop of a bakery in the Lebanese village of Ramallah, um, 27 kilometers south of Beirut, uh, startup partners with Sun has installed a pioneering solar power system Large silver mirrors capture the sun's rays and magnify it to build heat. The heat is transported by a transfer fluid, which is then used to help operate a convection oven, allowing it to reach a baking temperature of around 300 Celsius. This oven will save bakery owners about 80% of their monthly usage of diesel, and therefore it would reduce the price of the bread bundle that reaches the consumer. Uh, practically, each bakery would have <coughs> would save at least around 10 tons of diesel a month. 
Um, so the solar convection oven uses an innovative heat exchange mechanism for which the patent is currently under review in the Netherlands. The oven is designed for industrial use in the baking industry. Always some bakery in Ramallah is testing out the pilot oven provided by partners with Sun. It saves on our production's diesel consumption and gives us better quality. We are still in the trial period. We started with them. I hope we can continue and it gives us what we need so we can rely on it. What is the environmental impact of a solar oven? By using clean renewable energy, the new oven redu reduces energy costs and food prices. It also avoids the need for polluting fuel boilers. We aim between now and 2030 to bury the last boiler operating on diesel or electricity in food and beverage production in Lebanon. Yeah, I thought this was really, you know, great news for both for people to afford bread and for, you know, for climate, for the climate. So that's wonderful. Yeah, that's great. I'll say that I just put a link in the chat also because I was at one point researching solar ovens because I wanted to donate to some cause that would, you know, help people in the third world have to not, you know, burn wood for their cooking. But it was pointed out somewhere that, well, why don't you buy a solar oven instead of just, you know, trying to get other people to use them? And so I decided to do it. And so I really like it. <laughs> it's called the ghost sun. Um, so anyway. What have you made? What have you made? In <laughs> well, I mostly, you know, cook things like, you know, vegetables or rice or something. But you can cook anything in it, really. And... Um, and in fact, you know, there's a Coast Sun community kitchen on Facebook and you can, you know, interact with other people doing it and they give recipes, but I'm not much into cooking really. But, um, you know, and you can do it even if it's cold out, as long as it's sunny. Um, you know, it could be like snow on the ground, <laughs> but if it's sunny, you can do it. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I will for sure check it out. And I don't know, there are more good news to share, but do you want to go for, you know, there's, you know, on railroads, how um, Austria is doing a really cool thing. And I thought that would be something we should push for every country to do. And then maybe we can close the room and, you know, share more next time. Um, so I just have a question, if yeah. that's okay. Was so, this, sure. so this is this is bakeries. So this is um, not individual ovens or not capacity for individuals to have the oven. It's, it's for bakeries? Yeah, in Lebanon. Yeah, I think most people there just... I guess they just buy the bread. Um, yeah, well, I mean, most most of us do, you know. I mean, we all, I took to the sourdough pita baking during the quarantine, like many people. But I think, um, you know, it's, it's more common these days to buy it from a bakery. I, I was just curious about that. I know my great-grandmother told me that when she was a child that they would, 
they would go to the local bakery and bring their dough that they the people would need at home and then bring the dough to the bakery to have it baked and it was kind of a you know way that people would also get together and i i was just wondering if they did anything you know if, if you've heard of anything like that it's such a nice community building thing to do over your bread yeah that sounds really nice that sounds wonderful yeah i loved it she said oh. they would walk across it was in new york city and they would walk across the rooftops over walk across the rooftops over to the bakery window and climb in and then go down and, and bake their bread it's i can it's a nice visualization so yeah i love that that you've got that oven joyce i want to try that but yeah thank you let's hear about let's let's hear about what austria is doing yeah so you know we produce a lot of e-waste um and it's really bad waste like it has a lot of toxins and actually it has also a lot of resources in there that we actually will need for the future and you know people countries are thinking about how to reduce the e-waste and Austria has helped pay for more than half a million repairs in bid to tackle e-waste and EU-wide right to repair law um, that is now already in place um, makes it easier to repair than re replace electronics so Austrians have been taking advantage of such a scheme to repair broken electrical devices designed to tackle electronic waste. The government program covers half of half the cost of repairs. It applies to defective devices such as smartphones, laptops, coffee makers and dishwashers. Since being introduced one year ago, it has seen uh, 360,000 vouchers worth up to 200 um, euros redeemed according to the environment um, ministry this way beyond this is way beyond what was hoped for authorities had initially expected 400,000 vouchers to be redeemed by the beginning of 2026 the program allows customers to take defective devices to one of the 3,500 locations across the country <clears throat> Similar schemes could spread across the EU under a new right to repair law. What does the EU right? Oh, well, we know what the new, I, I guess. So you can just, you know, even Apple and so on has to open up basically that you don't lose all kinds of, you can, you have the right to repair also your Apple devices and so on. They have to give you a manual and they're, they have to allow third parties to also supply uh, replacement um, tools and so on. Um, and apparently it works pretty well. So um, the scheme would reduce waste by giving consumers the right to ask for repair rather than a replacement and by making repairs easier and more cost effective. It could, would also combat plain obsolescence when goods become unusable after a certain period with no method of repairing them. This would encourage producers to develop more sustainable products and business models. Technology that is thrown away instead of being fixed already produces 
35 million tons of waste and 261 million tons of CO2 emissions every year in Europe, according to the European Commission. Um, so, oh yeah, right, the UK has already that law and um, some countries have already introduced their own anti-waste laws. France since 2021 forced Apple, Samsung and other device manufacturers to add repairability score to their products, allowing consumers to make more informed choices. Yeah, so I think it's a great subsidy uh, Austria is doing um, and it reduces waste. Yeah, it is great because it seems like otherwise there, there's just there's rewards for, uh, you know, the planned obsolescence. And so sort of a race to the bottom, you know, uh, companies don't have that much incentive to to make them good quality. But anyway, that's a great trend. I hope there's more of that. It's a curious thing that there has to be an introduction to something called right to repair. It's, it's just, it's so bizarre. I don't know if anybody, again, I'm going to reference my great grandmother. She saved everything. She fixed everything and she taught me how to fix everything. And that gave me the mindset that, you know, before you get rid of something, you try to repair it and make it last. And, and so what you were saying, Joyce, about planned obsolescence, it's, you know, we know that's, that's how things are now, but once you, once you, um, it's a kind of a switch that you make inside of yourself to just think, um, is this, is this broken thing repairable? Can I do it? It, it not only can save you money, but it feels really good. It's a kind of, um, it just feels like power. It feels like a kind of independence that's, that I think is a positive thing for people to feel like you have a bit more control over, you know, your income, your life, to be able to fix something. So this is a wonderful thing in, for a lot of different reasons, because it's, um, you know, with, with businesses, corporations of, of such scale, it's, it's, um, it's just a different mindset that you can, I think, I think that uh, we have, could possibly turn over a lot of or give up a lot of our own power that we could take back if we you know when we can repair more things and things that we we use this tech every day in so many aspects of our lives so how wonderful to be able to repair things and and really use them up i love this article thank you hello killian welcome to the stage hi thanks i just wanted to to add in i've had a couple conversations um, in regenerative governance with Simon Michaud. And I tend to ask really direct questions and get, try to get to the point of things. So I've asked him um, point blank um, questions like, well, how much of this do we need and how much, how, how much will this last? And one of the things that, that is obvious about um, trying to achieve a one-to-one -one replacement of fossil fuels with electricity is you can't do that except once. You can do it once and then you run out of things, right? Um, and a lot of things you can't even quite get once. If you're talking about the whole world gets some, not just the rich people get some, the whole world gets some, you know, gets, gets equally shared, right? 
but the one way you can extend that and and even to do to get even close to that because of different bottlenecks and competing resources and stuff you must build out the um the uh, uh recycling system right and so the estimates my personal estimates were around 10 times current size of of global recycling but simon's estimates were even higher his were because he was factoring in more having to do with um you know bottlenecks and stuff that i can't really i don't know how to factor in as well as he does um uh and economics and things he, he was saying it would have to be potentially even 15 to 20 times larger than today to meet the demand right and so this law is the kind of thing that I would, you know, call localization that allows you and, and, and bioregionalization of things that allows you to massively reduce that need for recycling, right? If you, and so that makes it everything much more viable. It makes these ideas of this one-to-one -one switch off of fossil fuels more viable. It's still a stupid idea, mind you. It's, it's a dumb way of thinking about things because you put yourself at the edge of having nothing left if you actually want a one-to-one -one, rather than doing a massive drop in consumption plus recycling plus you know this right to repair plus all the other things we would do that makes much more sense but that's not what people are talking about so if we're going to talk about a one-to-one -one transfer to electric economy then you must massively ramp up recycling and this would really help if this was massively ramped up that would make that would provide uh, free up a lot of resources for all these other things that we want to try to do and and help conserve resources uh, to a huge extent so yeah this is great I'm, I'm i love hearing this i just wanted to jump up and throw that you, you probably already talked about that but i just wanted to throw it out there just in case thank you yeah thank you killian no we we didn't talk about that and that's a really important point and interesting because this is kind of a way that companies would see, you know, they might not sell every year a new, let's say, iPhone in the future with, you know, with, with because with these kind of um, models of the government, people will push more to devices that you can you know, that have a high score and fixability, like in France, where they introduced that score. So um, it, you would tend to buy more uh, products that um, that have a high score, but then you can expand to more countries uh, that you didn't cover before. Um, and an interesting detail, you know, uh, we had a laptop that we you know a macbook an old one that we didn't really know how to fix like i didn't really know how to fix so um a family friend i i knew they you know the kid needed one and i said yeah you know there's something is wrong with it but if you know how to fix it you know i would give it to you and they said yeah sure i'll send it to my home country they fix everything and then they send it back so 
it was really wonderful because she spent then around a hundred dollars send it back i don't know if it was costa rica or dominican republic they fixed everything and sent it back and now she has a working macbook so i think in other countries it's more common to fix to try to fix everything than you know in the so-called developed countries because i think that's a, a way better development <laughs> than um for the world and the climate so yeah i think yeah. other people are doing rather that. telling that she had to send it to another country to do it i i know for quite a few years there was a repair place in, where i live where my dad was always taking in vcrs and having them fixed and in buying used ones from the repair guy and stuff, but I don't know if that place stayed in business. Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting fallacy, partial fallacy that um, the poor are going to be devastated by climate change more than than the rich because it's the old, you know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall kind of thing. And so there is a there are very severe things that that the poorer people around the world are having to deal with and. And they're going to have to re reestablish their own resilience um, more quickly. But here's the thing: they can much more easily than someone from New York City can. Right? The global poor have much less distance to fall to the bottom. Some of them are already there, and so if if the trick there is to see if we can facilitate, see if they can facilitate their own return to knowledge that's not too far in their past, in in a lot of cases, right? So. I, I think that with some creativity and and remembrance and digging back through the memories of their grandparents and things like this, a lot of people around the world are going to be far more resilient to these changes than, say, an American or or a Japanese or a Korean or or some you know or many Europeans who who have zero understanding of how to do anything for themselves. Uh, that's a much further distance to fall. And so I think, and then once systems start to start to fall, once they start to crack and crumble, they tend to accelerate really quickly um, through that process. And so I think people are, are maybe going to be surprised at just who, in the long run, ends up suffering the most. Um, I, and and this kind of thing is is indi indicative of that. You know, the countries where they are already doing repair a lot because they have to out of necessity, because they don't have the resources we do, they don't have the money we do, right? In the richer countries, the more industrialized countries, they're forced to do it. So they have those skills, they have the knowledge. So when everything falls apart, okay, no problem. We know how to fix things, you know? And where us and the ocean be like, well, where's the repairman? Well, he died because he didn't have any food. So good luck, <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I think people are, have this kind of backwards, not not in every case, but I, I think they're going to be very surprised at how hard it is for the wealthy country to survive once things really start to fall apart, if we let that happen, which we shouldn't, but we, we seem to be doing that. Right. I, I just wanted to, um, to add to that. Um, I, I hear what you're saying about having resources and knowledge about the places that people who are indigenous to areas live. The other side of that, though, is racial discrimination and environmental policymaking. So that we find that 
people who are most at risk for uh, suffering climate change, for example, are people who don't have a great deal of financial resources and who may be may subsist on those resources that whose environment is being destroyed so can no longer exist on fishing can no longer exist on farming you know because of drought or soil depletion or here in the US you have higher levels of asthma in areas where there are um, even here in Oregon, where there are several areas in Portland that are just, um, depending on the type of factory that's there, the air is is unbelievably unhealthy, and those are not going to be in your higher income areas. That's not where those factories are built. So even though we're you know we're shifting um, conversation from uh, self sufficiency. But I, I really, it's important to make that point that that people who who are um, you know, living in a way that they have been living for centuries and maybe living um, closer to the land, even though they they may have the skills to survive, they may not be able to survive using those skills. And and you know, for example, look at Guatemala. With, with the overabundance of, of factory farms and the people who are indigenous can no longer live. They're kicked off of their land and have been forced to try to farm rocky soil mountainous areas. And, and it's, it's deadly actually. And, and you know they go in, in trucks and go work on the farm, on corporate farms in off seasons because they can't afford to feed themselves on the land that they have been forced to live on, on, on rocky mountainous areas. Just, you know, for example, just one example. So it isn't so clear cut that, um, you know, some people will survive and, and others won't because the effect of, of this, of, of climate change and, and the effects of, of, um, you know, irresponsible policy <laughs> and, you know, enforcement, lack of enforcement of regulations and laws are just like we were just talking about the Willow Project. Who is that going to affect? What people are, is that going to affect the most? That would affect the indigenous people who are living there in Alaska. And even though they, they know how to exist on that land, if that land is destroyed, then suddenly, you know, they're on the dole. And they're they're then you know added to the list of people who are needing to receive aid, so it's it is really it's really a responsibility that we all have to to take care of the you know yeah I mean this and, you know it's 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 really an important distinction to make. There is no and, bottom, you know. There is no bottom to fall to. It's um, you know, it's it's just in the hands of all of us to do our best. Uh, this is why I didn't make it black and white. That's why my comments were very broad and very general, because as a systems thinker, of course, all that's obvious. Um, but if we're the counterpoint to what you just said is I was making the distinction of as things are falling apart. So if things are falling apart, those economic considerations are gone because there, there is no economy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not a simple thing. It's not a that's why I made my comments so general and broad. But the, the point is, it's, it's going to be hard for everyone. It's not going to be as hard 
for as many people at the bottom as people think is my point. I think some of those people are going to be far more resilient than expected. And on the opposite side is uh, that the, you know, the people that are living in New York City and London and stuff are going to find themselves starving to death, you know, potentially, because they have no idea how to take care of themselves. And suddenly those food supplies, one third or one half or, you know, two thirds of what it used to be. Um, it's so, as you said, it's not, it's not going to be as simple as people think it is. And it's not, we talk about it too much like, oh, the poor, the poor, the poor. And that's great that we need to, to understand that. But people are really missing the, that the, the rich are going to have, they just do have so much further to fall. And so the idea that the rich are going to survive this better than the poor I think that's the that's where the error is. Is that's sure. where the error is. Um, maybe I don't we, think that's gonna be true. Sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt you, I apologize. Yeah, maybe it would be good to not I d I don't know. I, I just I personally have issue with that need for comparison because it, it just it doesn't hold water. It's it's um, challenging to hear just even the term fall and, and close to the bottom. It's um, to imply that somebody who is poor is close to something called a bottom <laughs> is, is uh, but you know, it's, if, it's again, a, then let's okay. use the example of living in an area that is so polluted that everybody has asthma. So it doesn't matter how, you know, what your knowledge base is. If, if you have money, you can leave, you know, take a hurricane coming when when there is a hurricane when there is flooding in louisiana people can leave if they have money i've known people to say hey i i my car doesn't work i don't know how i'm going to get out of here but i hear there's a warning and we're supposed to leave so it isn't it isn't and and the poor people without um you know financial resources that's not a monolith either and I know that you're just trying, you know, you're making yeah. a very a useful generality, but it, it doesn't it it doesn't serve us to generalize people. Um, Katarina was bringing up a really great uh, room that we had earlier in the year. It was um, a researcher from China, and he was saying how how useful it's been to what he what he did was he was saying that when people before he did his research um, researching climate effects of climate change on micro environments that he saw a wide uh, variety of of effects that people were suffering or not suffering and if you just look at a larger map of china then you might say the east is you know this is the temperature and the climate he was you know talking about the difference between temperature and climate and he was saying this is one way over here and in the west it's another way but he said, no, the variation is so much greater and we mustn't forget that, that there is no monolith, that everything, that, that there are, are things that are typical to different regions, things, requirements and, and you know, things that people need to deal with. So I caution anybody making a sweeping generalization, even even when you're, you know, some, you, I understand you're trying to make it black and white. No, I'm not. And, and I appreciate that. Well, that's just, I'm repeating what you said. So forgive me if I repeated you wrong. Yeah. So I'm just, I, I, I can't um, condone somebody saying something like the poor have less distance to fall because they have resources because that's, it's a bit of a fairy tale. If your air is filthy and, and you can't afford your insulin, 
then you're going to suffer. And if so you have enough, you know, if you have resources to take a class at a community college and retrain yourself and change your career, you're not going to suffer as much. So there is, there is, there is um, solace in privilege. That, so so Vic yeah. Victoria, may I please? Okay, so you're totally misconstruing what I said. Um, and you're doing a bit of language gatekeeping, which always drives me crazy. I think the context that I set was pretty clear. And I was using the language that I was using that fits what I was trying to say. And if I had intended to talk for 10 minutes, you've talked three times longer than I did to, to say what I was trying to say in rebutting what I was saying. If I had taken the time to speak that long, I could have been as detailed as you were. I was trying to not take up everybody's time, one. So I was trying to be efficient with how I spoke. Two, I was making a very general point that, and it is very general and it is actually true, that a lot of the people that think they're gonna skate by on the skate through are not going to. That's the point I was trying to make. It's really quite simple. And that some of the people that, that are expected to suffer won't suffer as much as people expect to do because they're going to be stronger, more resilient, more intelligent than people are than they're being given credit for. So I'm raising up those people. I'm not I'm not dismissing them or or you know discounting them or discounting their pain. I grew up poor for Christ's sake. You know I I grew up very very poor. I I get poverty. I understand what it is. I really do. Even though I'm white and American, I I grew up extremely poor. Etc. Etc. So I'm not discounting anything. I'm making a very simple point that the modern, the more, the more, uh, you know, sophisticated or, or um, you know, industrial parts of the world, I think they're going to suffer more than they expect to. And I think some. I didn't say all. I didn't say it was a monolith. I never said that. So that was a straw man argument, which I really don't appreciate. Um, uh, some of them are going to be more resilient than we expect. It's just not going to play out the way that is being portrayed right now. All you hear is the poor are just going to suffer and the rich aren't. It's, and that's not going to how it's going to end up in the long run. And I am mentioning the long run, not today, not tomorrow. In the beginning, it absolutely is the poor that are suffering more. But in the long run, I believe they're going to be more resilient overall. But we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But I, I, I reserve the right to speak how I, how I speak and have my voice and not, have, not be insulted for having a voice that is not yours. I understand that some people really, really want to tell other people what your words to use. I think that's extremely oppressive and I, I just, I don't accept it, but that's all right. Yeah, yeah so I'm sorry that, that you felt insulted and, and, and I apologize for that and that's why I was trying to make it from my own perspective that I can't condone it in my own heart. It's to be here and and let that go and not address it. And and I did uh, and say something that that is in agreement with you. Speaking of my great grandmother, that that resilience that she grew up with is is really a mindset that I got from her. The idea that you can repair something is is power, and that's important. And she learned that. Because that was how she was taught. It, it, was, it was necessary from the poverty that she and we lived through. And, and so I understand you're saying that. And at the same time, um, that's, you know, that's a wonderful prediction. It is, it is a prediction. You know, we, don't, we can't say none of us are, can, can truly predict the future or say what the future will be. 
but we can, you know, we can make a guess at it and sure that's, that is your prediction. That's wonderful. It, it isn't, you know, it isn't an edict, however. And, um, you know, so if, if you take that personally, then all I can do is apologize. And just in the same way as you, it's, it's important that when, when something feels unfair, um, you know, that, that people can say that, that doesn't feel fair to me that, um, you know, to, to monolith people or say that people have, you know, less to fall because there's so much that's being missed there. And, and, um, you know, so yeah, just like you, you're welcome to state your, your case. And my intention was to say, here's how this sounds to me. So if, you know, that's something that you took personally and that hurt, then I apologize. And, um, you know, I'm glad that you, that you spoke in response and welcome Kyle. Welcome Kirko. Nice to see you. Both. If I can add something, I wanted to try to speak in between. Um, I can understand both sides. I, we have to be careful to state, you know, in what trouble people and countries are where climate is impacting the most already climate change and um, you have you know people that have land that uh, because of drought is not useful anymore and fleeing and being in you know in in in, in camps of refugee camps that don't have currently enough funding for food currently it's really an issue because there are so many conflicts around the world that funding is spread very thin and uh, in different places around the world they already cut food supplies and will cut them more and you know these is these type of situations you cannot really fix with uh with building up resilience like uh, fixing things however i also um you know see from skills that my grandmother had and my great-grandmother uh, because they grew up very poor um, and um, and maybe also you know I don't have certain skills because I grew up in Germany quite industrialized but then I was a single mom quite early so I had to kind of you know get by with with lower um, with less money but so you I agree that you develop certain skills that you don't see in people let's say growing up in Westchester and higher middle um, middle income households they just don't have any survival skills and those households those middle come it middle income US households will be in trouble too due to climate change and rather sooner than later and you know there's not the super rich and not the super poor uh, but i kind of agree that for them for example not having electricity for a few days or um you know getting by being in situations that are kind of extraordinary for them uh, for extended period of time will be a bigger shock than for people that already used to be in this situation. And 
It's not stopping at anyone's doorstep. The super rich, sure, they will be able to just go somewhere. But, you know, wildfires already at, at, in Canada and wildfires will be also in upstate New York and, um, and floods will be coming to New York City. And I don't see really how a higher middle income family living used to for generations to live pretty, you know, comfortable around here, also in the suburbs to cope with situations like that pretty well. And because they didn't, you know, they didn't pass down certain survival skills that maybe a person, you know, that survived a bunch of, you know, distressing situations accumulate like has like I think that was kind of the point that was being trying to media and I I realized that a bunch of times I always think oh my god how will these people cope in the future um, a lot of times um, so you know middle-income families in New York at some point it will hit them too the food price already higher but the increase is way like not as much as let's say for a family in Turkey but at some point it will come here with climate change too and I don't see anyone growing crops in their backyards although a lot of people maybe in Westchester would have more than enough space to grow you know some of their food so I think that kind of example like my grandmother was totally fine growing some plants in the middle of Porto and having chicken and and you know also killing them <laughs> and eat the eggs uh, she was able to do all of that has kale for the soup uh, grow her own kale and stuff and i don't see people growing up let's say in white plains or so having any of those skills i think that was the point that was made here Forgive me, but uh, I was kind of like missing uh, for a second, so I'm not quite sure what we're talking about here. Welcome up, Kirka. We were actually about to say goodnight. Katarina read this really interesting article about um, that you can see it's pinned up there. I don't know if you wanted to see it, so. I remember the the article with the e-waste, like how there's like, like I think some like uh, certain companies are trying to like, third party out the repair so you don't have to always try and replace it because you can save on like materials later um but like i don't know i was trying to kind of going through the chat uh just a little bit because i only have one eye to read with so it's kind of hard right now <laughs> um so like i don't know i just see something about four people and clarification so i, I don't know what, what if that's like dealing with the article or if it was like some other thing going on or something yeah, so I shared this article that Austria is subsidizing repairs of, of smartphones and machines that you use at home and so on. And it's been used a lot in the country. Uh, people are uh, taking opportunity of this. Um, also in France and UK, once they change the le legislation that you have the right to repair, people have been... Uh, and now in France, there's even a score now that um, shows how um, good some uh, type of, you know, electric um, 
I don't know, whatever, phone, whatever, how good it is to be repaired, like how easy it is, and, you know, that score, people then make decision if they should buy it or not. And I just gave the example how, um, you know, it's, because we were talking about do we need this type of, like, registrations more to have less e-waste and I said that uh, friends of mine um, you know we had the MacBook here that wasn't working at home and the daughter she couldn't you know they, they didn't have a laptop for her I said yeah I don't know if you can figure out how to repair this MacBook then you can just have it kind of you know behaving like a spoiled brat and and they said yeah sure we we know a repair shop in our home country we'll just send it there and he'll fix it maybe and then send it back and it really worked um it worked really well they spent like a hundred dollars or something and then we kind of said that you know in some places people are already using this repair they don't just waste everything um not compared to the u.s and um, yeah that was the whole discussion ah uh, yeah that's pretty true like i just went through something like that maybe like two weeks ago like uh the facial scan on my old phone stopped working there was like no way to like get it sent in because like if you were to forward it should i go through apple they were like, oh, well, you're due for an upgrade. And I wasn't trying to upgrade. Because I didn't want to have to pay extra money every month. You know what I'm saying? And I still had to end up upgrading. Because there's, like, no real, like, hey, let's just fix this one thing. So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, that that's, you know, fixing things you know, reduces waste significantly. I yeah, I don't even want to tell you, like my great aunt in Portugal, she was even worse than my grandma. She wouldn't throw away anything. She would wash out everything, like, and reuse it. Even plastic bags, she would wash them out, hang it in the sun and reuse them. She would never take, like, new plastic bags bags because Portugal I don't know a long time ago they were starting to charge plastic bags in the in the store and it was like tiny amounts but you know as I said they grew up very poor um, at some point um, a part of my family and yeah so once they started charging I think even before they started charging she would just not waste anything like she would fix everything wash out everything <laughs> reuse everything grow everything for the soup herself yeah if everyone did that we wouldn't have a plastic waste problem huh <laughs> you know the crazy I think Catherine you can correct me if I'm wrong but wasn't there like a, a previous like uh talk uh from like new like I guess like uh like, uh, I guess new, like, ecological niches developing in those, like, plastic waste piles. Was there a talk on that? I, I don't know why I remember that. Oh, yeah, in the science news, I think we had one in the ocean where you have, like, this islands of plastic that there are developing, like, ecological niches there 
um, animals that are usually only reproducing you know on coastlines um, they they are starting to be found to re reproduce not to use this plastic islands to reproduce and then there was another article that in china they found in 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 like um, coastlines that are you know where a lot of plastic waste is laying around for years that there are now microbes they found microbes that digest these plastics now and they are naturally evolved that way um, not like that somebody engineered them and put them there it just happened The thought that I had, uh, thanks for the warm welcome. <laughs> I um, was just thinking, I don't see the climate change would affect the rate of like growth on the earth, which is a good thing. And I think that as our networking systems are advancing, the creative freedom that humans will have to like optimize transportation networks and stuff will be moving proportionally with that. So uh, something to consider. Hey, Catherine, have you heard about um, artificial reefs that uh, some like scientists are trying to create for like ecological and like, uh, I guess like weather environmental purposes? I'm sorry, can you repeat? I, I was, I my connection was bad for a second there. No problem. Uh, I, I don't remember where I heard this, but there's like a like certain scientists, they were trying to uh, kind of make artificial reefs uh, to provide like a place for a certain like uh, ocean life and also to like help stop like uh, like environmental like catastrophes, like big waves and stuff like that. Give like a kind of like a, a, a break from hitting the shore or something like that. Because I remember seeing that somewhere because I didn't know that that's another function of, of reefs was like as a uh, kind of like a, a, a nature-based break for like big like ocean waves and stuff like that. Yeah, so artificial leaves, you mean like artificial um, photosynthesis that you can then build up, build, use like and different places to um to then um yeah let me let me find that they generate clean fuels from sunlight and water yeah here i found it yeah they, they are different developments in that to basically recreate photosynthesis in different type of um places um so you could use different materials and embed it in there um, so you can create um, fuels or hydrogen like you can you know and the the thing is you only produce what during this process um, oxygen actually um, instead of you know producing carbon which is really great and it has been challenging for a while but the more they kind of 
figured out the different processes of photosynthesis. Um, you can basically convert with, um, with these autonomous devices um, and you can have them float on the water um, or you know anywhere um, where you would like to use it and where there's sunlight. It's really cool. Um, and they tried it out in um, England um, near Cambridge. And yeah, I check out that article. So um, you could probably produce, you know, for cargo vessels fuel uh, with that. Um, so you kind of can, you know, capture carbon and at the same time produce fuel, which is really, really cool. And I hope this, there's a way to scale up the production of these. Got it. Thanks. I'm checking it out. Thank you, Elizabeth. Oh, sorry, Katarina. I just wanted to mention Elizabeth has shared something really interesting in the chat. Great to see you back, Kyle, also. Yeah. Thanks. Sorry, I was uh, <clears throat> caught up with my Bluetooth. It was it doesn't uh, connect over the microphone, so it was getting screwed up there. But thank you. Nice to see you as well. Yeah, I just saw Elizabeth share. I agree that the true cost of um, things we use now, like fuels, are don't include the the damage that is being done to the to the climate and the damage for future generations. So um, it's way too cheap and not calculated, right? So if you would add that, which there are discussions uh, to push, you know, legislation to that, then renewables would be even way cheaper compared to uh, non-renewable energy sources. So. Yeah, it would be really important to include that in the cost calculation. I agree. Okay, I think we've been going on for two hours now. I know there's so much more. I'm like a very long list. Victoria saw the list and she said, well, I hope this list is for the next few weeks. <laughs> so we'll do this again. We've been thinking of balancing out more. You know, we used to have like almost just um, guest speaker uh, events exclusively and nothing else. But I realize we also like discussing, you know, updating us on science news and have more broader discussions and then maybe decide together 
uh, which um, you know maybe researchers to invite in the future so uh, we're balancing it out a little bit more especially during the summer since my schedule will be less predictable and um, so we'll have these type of climate news and science news like a, about once a week and we'll keep up also to have like a guest speaker once or twice a week so uh, we kind of wanted to try it out to kind of balance it out that way so yeah we have the science news on Wednesday and um, yeah I hope to hear you all again there and yeah we'll we'll do another few climate newsrooms too I think those are really important and to stay updated on these topics so yeah feel free to join us and um, we'll educate ourselves together so yeah it was fun thank you so much everyone for coming and um, and I hope you enjoyed it too yeah thank you interesting question yeah, wonderful. Thank you to friends who shared in the chat and people who are here listening. And the room is just as wonderful as it is because of everybody who's here and whatever you contribute. We, we really appreciate it. So thank you so much. And yeah, we look forward to seeing you on Wednesday. If you would like to come. It will be a surprise what we share. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, I'll share, I'm sharing on Twitter along the week some articles. If you also have suggestions of stuff you want to share and talk about, feel free to also do that. Um, you know, come up and suggest an article or so. So yeah, feel welcome to participate as much as you would like or as little as you would like. Like no pressure, <laughs> but you know, we also welcome if you have something you feel like it's really important to share. So uh, yeah, thanks everyone. And I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye everyone. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. <laughs>